Back in 1647, a hundred or so of Britain's most educated pastors and Bible scholars met at Westminster Abbey in London to put the great doctrines of the Bible on paper for the benefit of the churches. Things proceeded well until they got to the doctrine of God. They tried, but as the story goes, they eventually became so discouraged that one of the members of the assembly suggested that they spend some time in prayer. And as the story goes, a young Scottish pastor named George Gillespie, who died one year after that assembly convened at the age of 35, stood up and prayed the following. God, you are a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchanging in your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. At which point someone interrupted and said, is someone writing this down? And so the answer to question four of the Westminster Shorter Catechism came into existence as we know it. Derek read it for us, or recited it for us. Question four of the Westminster Shorter Catechism designed to teach adults and children the great doctrines of the Bible, this one concerning the doctrine of God, asked the question, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And that answer will provide for us the subject matter for the remainder of the sermons, Lord willing, in this year of 2022. For the next 10 weeks, we're good to look at the attributes, going to look at the attributes or characteristics of God as described in this answer. His spirituality, his infinity, his eternality, his impassibility, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth. But we're going to do this, I trust, in a, I hope, helpful way. There's a couple of different ways to go about a sermon series on the attributes of God. You can treat them like a, almost a theological treatise where you're just going to pastor, chapter after chapter and looking up where all these attributes show up and then applying it. That's one way to do it but that's not the way we're going to do it. Instead, what we're going to do is see these characteristics of God that are described in this catechism question displayed in the stories of Scripture. I've entitled the series, Attributes in Action. Uh, We want to see these characteristics of God shown in the way He engages with His world. So we're going to see God's character as it's displayed in the various stories of Scripture. And this, this morning, we're going to turn to the first of these attributes that are described, which is God's spirituality. God is spirit. And we're going to look at the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where that very phrase shows up. God is spirit. John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus tells the woman at the well, God is spirit. Why does he bring that up? What impact does that have on our lives today? What does it mean that God is spirit? That's the subject of our time together this morning. Three things that we learn from John chapter 4 about what it means that God is spirit. First one, God is spirit means that God will personally seek us. God is spirit means that God will personally seek us. See, brothers and sisters, as a spirit, God is personal. See, if God were mere matter, if He was made up of the stuff of earth physically, it wouldn't necessarily mean that he was conscious. Think about just Genesis chapter 1 when God 
had to breathe into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a what? A living being. It was the Spirit that gave Adam life. It was the fact that he had a human spirit given to him that gave him life. Well, God is most pure Spirit. And because God is Spirit, He's always alive. He's personal. He thinks, He acts, He plans, He creates, and He governs. And we're told in verse 23, He seeks. Look at chapter 4, verse 23 and 24 again where Jesus says to the woman, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. So you see why He says God is spirit because He just said God is seeking. Because part of what it means for God to be spirit is for God to personally seek us. Now this conversation between Jesus and this woman is a conversation that nobody would have expected, least of all his disciples. There are four reasons at least given in this passage for why this conversation should not be happening, at least from a cultural perspective. The first is there's a significant racial divide between Jesus and this woman. We are told in chapter 4, at the beginning, verse 1, now when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more although John, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed in for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. See, Jesus was Jewish, and Jews and Samaritans did not get along well. Samaritans hated Jews, see? And hostility between Jews and Samaritans was widespread and very, very bitter. That's one reason the conversation was surprising. Secondly, There was a gender divide. Today, we don't think twice about a man initiating a conversation with a woman like Jesus did here. But back then, it was highly unusual. In fact, it's so unusual, we're told in verse 27, when the disciples get back from going to get food, we read, just then his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. See, we don't find that quite so unusual, but they did disciples were shocked when they discovered this was happening they were gone. Third, not only was there an ethnic or racial divide, a social divide. Most people would rather go draw well from a water or water from a well much earlier in the morning or later in the day when it was cooler. But in order to avoid scandal, this woman went alone at the height of the new day sun. And she had to carry back water for drinking and cooking and washing. It was not a fun job, but it's a lot better if you don't have to deal with the social awkwardness of the moment. So why is she there in the middle of the day all alone? Because she's a social outcast. Finally, there's a religious divide. Here's a sinful Samaritan woman talking to a sinless Jewish rabbi. She has all these strikes against her. She has ethnic barriers, she has gender barriers, she has moral barriers, and even religious barriers. And yet, Jesus reaches past those barriers to strike up a conversation with her because the Father is seeking worshipers. So Jesus defies all racial, gender, moral, religious barriers that are just culturally imposed. He never breaks the law of God. He's happy to break the law of men. 
if that law of men contradicts the law of God. And he does all that to interact with this woman. He broke centuries-old taboos. He went to be alone in Samaria. He sat at the well. He spoke and did not remain silent. He spoke to a Samaritan. He spoke to a woman. He spoke to an adulteress. He asked for a drink. And the only vessel available was hers. Now in the last chapter, John chapter 3, what's going on? Jesus had just finished talking to a man who has none of these barriers. Nicodemus, one of the pride of the Pharisees. He's Jewish, he's male, he's upstanding, he's spiritually minded. It's very easy to think that these are the people that Jesus likes. These are the ones he's seeking. And he is seeking such people. But friends, Jesus doesn't like to just hang out with good people who live good lives and have good reputations. John here shows us that Jesus does not just relate to people like that. Jesus has no problem taking the initiative with people who aren't visibly good, who have all kinds of reasons for not being at a church. Jesus has got no problem sitting down for a meal with them, at a meal with them. You may be here this morning feeling like that, somewhat of a social outcast. You came because someone asked you, but you really don't want to be here. You certainly don't think Jesus would want you here. Now I've got good news for you. He wants you here. He brought you here, whether you realize it or not. And he came because he wants to have a conversation with you. A conversation that will disrupt your world, call you to faith, call you to take risks, and save your soul. You don't have to clean up your life and get ready to become a religious, respectable type person. That's not what we're trying to create here at Heritage. The world has enough of those. We want Christians, we want disciples. And the message of the Bible is that Jesus initiates with us right where we are in the most surprising ways. Dead, he shows back up his disciples to his disciples. They can't believe. They think he's a spirit. They think it's something going on. They're, they're, they're not sure what's happening. They could be hallucinating. Who knows? How does Jesus comfort them that it actually is him physically? He says in Luke 24, 39, a spirit does not have flesh and bones like I have. So that is, a spirit does not have flesh and bones. A spirit is not material. It's not visible. It's not tangible. We can't touch it. We can't see it. Now, that does not mean that God's essence as spirit is not real. In fact, it's more real than the actual physical world. It's more real than the material world because reality itself is spiritual. Because God is reality. God is fundamentally re fundamental reality. So when we say that God is spirit, we're not saying that he's merely space or he's energy or he's thought or he's influence. You may ask a couple of questions having heard that God in his essence is spirit, that he's not material, that he's not physical, that he doesn't have a body. You say, well, what are we to make of the Bible's statements regarding God's mouth, God's hands, God's ear, God's feet, God's eyes, God's arms? We hear God speak that way all throughout the Scripture. My arm is not too short that it might not save. My feet are swift to help. What, what, what are we to think of those things? Well, the Bible is clearly using figures of speech as God accommodates Himself to our physical world and, and physical understanding. He's accommodating Himself to our understanding by entering into our physical existence and communicating something about Himself to us and with us. 
And it's true what he is communicating, even though he is using metaphor and figure of speech to communicate it. We are not to take these things literally. What would happen if we did? God is called a bird with wings in the Old Testament. Really? He's a lion and he has horns and he's a bird with wings? Which is it? No, these are all figures of speech. God is, the point is, is that God is able to do without a body and without limitation what only we can do with a body and with limitations. If God is a spirit and does not have a body and Jesus has a body, does that mean Jesus isn't God? Now hang with me. This is very important that you don't become a theological heretic on accident. Church history has solved this question for you in the first and second century. Okay, because these were questions that the New Testament church was dealing with. Okay, if God is a spirit and he doesn't have a body, but Jesus has a body, does that mean he's not God? Those were questions that were asked. We do know that Jesus has a body, and we do know that Jesus is God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God, Jesus is God, and yet Jesus has a body. However, we have to remember that Jesus is one person with two natures. He has a divine nature, and he has a human nature. And his physical body is not part of his divine nature. It doesn't get blended in to the divine nature. He retains his entire divine nature, which he shares in essence with the Spirit and the Father, without ever compromising it with a physical body. He's added to his divine nature a physical body. That does not mean that Jesus is any less spiritual. He is as much spirit as the Father and the Son are spirit because he shares the same essence with the Father and the Son. His body belongs to his humanity, and therefore his divine nature remains spirit. So God the Son remains spirit even as he maintains a real human nature. Doesn't that solve all your questions? No, it's mystery. It's mysterious, of course. But it keeps us in the right lanes, theologically speaking. And as spirit, God, everything about the essence of God is invisible. We read in 1 Timothy 1.7, God is invisible, 1 Timothy 1.17. God's essence then cannot be seen or touched. God makes himself visible in the Old Testament, right? In fire and cloud and things like that. He does it in a mediated way. He takes upon some physical characteristic of creation and then his spirit moves into it. In fact, we're told in John chapter 1, no one has seen God. He makes himself visible by manifesting himself in a physical way, but nothing of his essence is being seen since he is spirit. Because God is spirit, he's not confined to a single point of what we're seeing in John 4. What say what he says in John 4, 16 to 18? When Jesus says to her, her appeal, hey, give me this water that you're talking about so I don't have to come out here every day. He says, okay, go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, you're right. You don't have a husband? You've had five husbands. Well, how does he know that? Because God is spirit. He's present everywhere. He sees everything. He knows everything. See, a body can only be in one place at one time, but because God is spirit, he has no such limitations and he's able to diffuse himself through all of space at all times. And because God is everywhere, He knows everything and He sees everything. 
He knows everything about us. And what do we tend to do by nature when we learn that? We do what the woman in the well did. We change the subject. Look at verse 20. The woman said to him, verse 19, Oh, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. See, we see God's presence highlighted in the discussion about the physical location of temples. This woman makes a shift from talking about her sexual sin to spirituality. Where should we be worshiping Jesus? Where should we be going to church? The Jews say we should do it over there in Jerusalem. The Samaritans say we should do it at Mount Gerizim. Which one should we be doing it in? See, the Samaritan thought that the only place to worship God was Mount Gerizim, which happened to be in Samaria. However, since God is spirit, Jesus states that God is seeking worship that transcends physical places and physical things. Since God is of a spiritual essence, worship of Him must be spiritual worship. God may and must be worshipped in any and every place. But all that worship must be done in spirit and in truth. See, in the past, God located His presence at the temple in Jerusalem. And now Jesus has made the temple obsolete because He Himself is the temple of God. And united to Him, we are the people in whom God's Spirit dwells. And because God's Spirit lives in us, we have immediate access to God through the Spirit by the Son. Through the indwelling of the Spirit, Jesus is our place of worship. And so this is what makes corporate worship in this gathering so, so important, brothers and sisters. It's because as we come together as living temples of God, we are being built together as living stones to be a house in which God dwells by His Spirit. God's Spirit dwells among us as we gather in a way that's unique. No other way does He, does he manifest Himself in the same way un, 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 unless His people are gathered together. That doesn't mean He doesn't manifest Himself or, or we're not His temple or we don't have the, the, the fullness of the Spirit in a certain way as individuals. But God intends to dwell among us, as 1 Peter 2 says, when we gather together as living stones to be a spiritual house. See, we worship everywhere. We can worship in little chapels or in great cathedrals or storefronts or warehouses or under a tree, even gyms. But what makes all of this possible is the spirituality of God. See, He's present everywhere. He can be with us as much as He is with every other church gathering all around the world this Lord's Day and our, the, those who have already gathered. Now, obviously, this has implications for how we think about worship, doesn't it? Because God is spirit, he must be worshiped in spirit. This is what Jesus says in John 4.24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. See, this isn't optional. It isn't optional. It's like, well, we can worship in spirit or not. No, if you're going to worship God who is spirit, you have to worship in spirit. That means our worship is essentially spiritual. It's not material. It's not based on things we see. It's based on things we can't see. We sing and we pray and we focus on Scripture so that our hearts might be drawn out to our invisible God by faith. See, in our sin, we get focused like the woman. What happens when the Word of God gets taken away from a people for an extended period of time? They become physical idolaters. The worship of God takes on physical forms. Icons and idolatry and symbols and experiences and incense and all these sorts of things. 
and even in a vacuous evangelical culture, you get drama and light shows and bands and real cool experiences because we, we forget that we worship a God who is spirit. Therefore, God's spirituality demands not only spirituality in worship, but simplicity in worship. Regulated by God's Word. So we just read, we pray, we sing, we preach, we see the Word, we in baptism in the Lord's Supper. We do of worship to the neglect of inner heart engagement with God. Do you have more knowledge about what people are wearing than who we're here to worship? Like, it's easier to notice that stuff than to actually, like, engage in prayer and not drift off. When we sing, do we sing? Do we sing? Do you, do you sing? Do you open your mouth and praise God who is spirit? You must. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. When we preach, do you listen? For this entire minute, 90 minutes, are you watching and praying over your own heart, engaging your mind and consciously and reverently setting yourself continually in the presence of God, telling yourself, I am in the presence of an awesome God right now. I am in the presence of an awesome God. I have to tell myself that. I have to repeatedly tell myself that when I'm starting to drift. I am in the presence of an awesome God. I am in the presence of an awesome God who is also my Father. So it's not some fearful thing. It's a reminder that of the awe with which should characterize my heart. We are not here, brothers and sisters, week in and week out to inculcate empty traditionalism or denigrate into superficial emotionalism. I don't have time nor the patience nor the desire to do that. And I know you don't either. So, oh, that the fullness of the Spirit would mark our gatherings as the Word of Christ dwells richly in us and we drink in the riches of God's presence in Christ by prayer and song and teaching. This is what Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 are talking about. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And, and, then, and then Ephesians 5 talks about being filled with, filled with the Spirit, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That is the fullness of the Spirit coming with a heart full, singing, engaging, praying, preaching, living, interacting out of a love for Christ and a love for each other is the way the Spirit will be most made manifest among us. It's not going to appear in somebody falling over and flipping and doing a backflip. Okay, it's going to be manifested in the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, whether you can break dance like Justin Klein or not. And the man can break dance. So that is the fact that God is spirit. Not only is he pursuing us, seeking us, but he's present. He sees us. Thirdly, God is spirit means that God can powerfully save us. God can powerfully save, powerfully save us. What does spirit mean? When we read God is spirit. This isn't the first, this isn't coming out of nowhere. John chapter 4. John chapter 3. When Jesus said that God is spirit, what did he just say to the woman at the well about living water that satisfies every thirst? Look again. He says in verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
That's motion. That's energy. That's power. That's God is spirit. See, Jesus has an uncanny ability to put his finger on the greatest need of the person that he's talking to. And here he puts his finger on this woman's deepest need. She is spiritually dying of thirst. She has a deep hunger for God that nothing else can fill, even though she's tried it with all the men. The woman had been trying to slake her thirst in relationship after relationship, man after man. And Jesus says to her, look, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. I wish that we could post this inscription over many things, over our careers, over our relationships, over our achievements. All of these slake our thirst at certain levels, but we end up thirsty again. They will ultimately not quench our thirst. We use sex and money and power to try to quench our spiritual thirst, and ultimately these thirst quenchers leave us unsatisfied. When used as a substitute for the living water that Jesus talks about, they just turn into spiritual poison. They ultimately just leave us more thirsty than when we began. This is what Jesus said would happen. Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 2.13 when he said, My people committed two sins, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have for themselves their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot be water. Got a fountain of living water that God says, in an interview, he said the following, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it's all about. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. What's the answer? Man, I wish I knew. I love playing football and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. And at 45, 15 years later, he's still out there doing it with nothing to prove other than proving how hungry he still remains. He's got nothing to prove. You're the best ever, man. You're, you're the best, okay? But being the best isn't the best. C.S. Lewis told us, all the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of heaven, tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear, if I find in myself a desire which no existence experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Why are we far too easily pleased? Why? He doesn't get into that. The text tells us. We struggle with the concept of God's spirituality because our entire existence is physical. This is why when Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, Jesus interacts with the woman at the it's the same issue. No matter if it's a religious person or a religious person. Hey, If you are left to yourself, and I am left to myself, nothing of the Spirit gets in. You are dominated by physical. And even as Christians, we can still be dominated in certain ways by physical. 
to our great shame when we have spiritual reality. You want proof of it? How hard do you find it to pray? I stink at prayer. My prayer life is a pitiful example, and I grieve it. But why is it so hard to pray? Because nothing about, nothing about prayer is physical. And this is why prayer meetings don't get well attended. Nothing is physical about it. It's all spiritual. It feels so worthless. It feels like we need to be doing something else. Why? Because we're physical. We find it difficult to pray because we feel like, and none of us would be honest to say this, but our actions communicate otherwise, we don't think it matters all that much. We think we ought to be doing something because for us, the spiritual realm isn't the real realm. This is why Philippians our God is our belly. We are driven by what we satisfy in our physical appetites. And you eat and you feel good when you're done eating. What about prayer? I didn't feel anything when I went in. I don't feel any different when I went out. I had no immediate gratification because, brothers and sisters, as you might know by now, walking with Christ, you don't get immediate gratification in the spiritual world. It's all waiting, isn't it? Isn't the whole Christian life waiting? Aren't we just waiting? Who wants to wait? We're Americans. I ain't waiting for nothing. Stop light, move, car, get out of the way. Well, if that's our attitude, we aren't going to do very well as Christians. Because it's a long wait. For God to keep promises that we don't see. Hebrews 11 says, All the faith these of the Old Testament created these things from far and died without having them. Most of us will do that. Die for the coming spiritual. That's what it means to do everything for the glory of God, whether you eat or drink. You take all the physical and turn it spiritual. My point is that the reason that the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life is so prominent is because there's an immediate payback and pleasure that's derived from it. We struggle to live and walk by faith because it's not a part of the physical world. We want pleasure, prominence, position, power, praise in this life because we get something from it now. This is why Jesus says, if you get it now, you won't get it later. Matthew 6, you pray to be seen by men, you live to be praised by men, your praise is done. You got it because you were living by the flesh, however spiritual it appeared. Check yourself here, brother and sister. How much does prominence and pride and position drive your Christianity? I will do it if somebody notices. I will not do it if nobody notices. Check yourself and check myself. Our basic needs are spiritual. We must be born of the Spirit because the deepest needs of our soul are of a spiritual nature. This is why we read, and this is why the disciples can't understand what's going on here. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat! Eat! He'd just gotten back. He hadn't eaten anything. Rabbi, eat! But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. See, what's he doing? He's on a different level. He is gaining his from spirit. He's, God is spirit. He is filled with life and joy. And there's a, woo, that's a bug. Just came down, he decided to plop himself right down there on the manuscript. You were on the floor, my man. You can't come up and invade the preaching space. 
So I wasn't in the notes either. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? See, they're still wrapped up in the physical. He got a happy meal somewhere. Who, who dropped some food off to him? And he has to explain it to him again. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. That's my food, disciples. See, we're, we're his dumb disciples too. Preoccupied with the physical. And he comes alongside of us this morning and he says, remember what your true food is. You want to be deeply satisfied in this life. You want to know the living water that wells up in you for eternal life. This is my food to do the will and accomplish this work. Put that in your own screen. Every time you look at the phone. It's my food to do the will of him sent me and accomplish this work. Question mark. We need those sorts of reminders. The doorposts of my phone doomed to remain in our sins. Christ's words teach us that God is a living, powerful being who has life in himself and desires to give life to us. But how does this new life happen? Well, why does Jesus have this encounter with the Samaritan woman in the first place? Because he's thirsty. He's thirsty. This woman would never have found living water if Jesus wasn't thirsty. John 19, 28 and 29. I thirst. I thirst. Jesus experienced physical dehydration from the unrelenting abuse of men and spiritual dehydration from the undiluted wrath of God on the cross so that we would never be thirsty. Psalm 69, 21, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Psalm 22, 14 and 15, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus died of thirst so that we could have living water. He died in torment so that you could have the cool water of the favor of God running forever over your life. He was laid in the dust of death so that your thirst would be quenched. Jesus is the only God who will satisfy, fi, satisfy you when you find Him and He finds you. All other gods and idols will just enslave you. They won't satisfy you. In the midst of our barren desert of spiritual thirst, we hear the invitation of Jesus to the thirsty. If you knew the gift of God, you would ask Him for a drink of living water and your thirst would be satisfied. It is a gift, brothers and sisters. We do not earn it. We ask Jesus for it, and He gives it liberally. We say, Jesus, give me living water. And then we come to Him, and what happens? He quenches our thirst, and we can't stop telling other people about Him. Look at verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Verse 28, So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man! Who's told me all that I ever did? Can this be the Christ? She's already getting living water. Living water is already starting to flow in her. She's experiencing a satisfaction and a joy she has never experienced before. What did they do? Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves 
And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. A flood of living water came into Samaria through that well and started converting Samaritan after Samaritan after Samaritan after Samaritan. I conclude with this illustration. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, Jill, one of the four children, encounters Aslan the lion, the Christ figure in the story. And she's found dying of thirst in the silver chair. Remember the story? He bids her to come and to drink from his stream. And her interaction has resonated with hearts of all of us who follow the Lord Jesus. We know the struggle that Jill has. The lion says, Jill, are you thirsty? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Uh, may, uh, could, would, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. God doesn't like it when you try to push him away from being your living water. And as Jill gazed at this motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. So the lion's standing between her and the stream. And Jill says, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls? She said. Oh, I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. <laughs> Love C.S. Lewis's insights. Jill says, I dare not come and drink. The lion said, then you're going to die of thirst. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming, uh, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she could have ever had to do, but she went straight to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand, and it was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. She didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched her thirst at once. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give. The living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus, and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for being Spirit. God is Spirit. And because You are Spirit, You see us and You seek us and You save us. Praise Your holy name. We bless You. We ask Your forgiveness for the many ways. Lord, we, are, we know that You know our frame that we're but dust. We are so confined to this dust. And it's glorious dust. It's dust that you've made. We live in a world that is full of your glory, that you're going to redeem. There's nothing about matter in and of itself that, that, is, that is wrong. It matters. All matter matters to you. But because you are spirit, what is spiritual is what is most significant. The things we can't see, the things we can't touch, the things that are invisible, the things that are unseen. Lord, would you awaken us to the living water that you have placed within us by your Holy Spirit? Would you awaken us to the living water that you are 
And would we know something of what it means to follow our Savior and experience what He experienced when He said, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and accomplish His work. May we do that this day, this hour, this week, this month, for the rest of our lives. May our food be to do the will of you and to accomplish the work that you've given us to do. And then bring us home where we will drink from the fountain of living water forever and ever. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Come, eat, drink, be satisfied. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.